In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So, we finished the six weeks, and uh, today is just a review. So, uh, I'm sure everybody's ready for the pop quiz, right? <laughs> Alright, so, we're going, we're going to review the the general theme of every talk and just mention a few details but again we're not gonna like dive into every detail that we covered for every single talk of the whole series of course we won't have time to do all of that but I just have a few questions that I'm gonna ask you and uh, it will make for uh, a discussion because again I don't have any new material I'm not uh, gonna teach you anything new just gonna review and after we go through each uh, each one of the lectures, we'll uh, we'll conclude with an opportunity to ask any questions. You know, if you guys have any other questions aside from the questions I asked you that weren't covered or reviewed from our discussion, then you know you could ask those questions. All right. So, in our first lecture series, we had. Anthropology and soteriology, right? So, my first question for you is, why study theology, history, and the scriptures, and everything that we spoke about? Okay? Why? Why study all that stuff? Come to the knowledge of God. To come to the knowledge of God. Okay. So, we... we we know that for us to come to the knowledge of God isn't just like an, an intellectual process, right? It's not something we do mentally speaking. It's not like you learn a certain subject by uh, putting your head to it, right? But the knowledge of God is intimacy with God, is a relationship with God, and that's essentially what we are created for, okay? So this is the desire that God has for us, that He created us with the desire of us knowing Him, okay? And if you remember, we concluded the series with this exact same concept, right? That That's our purpose. So, we're created for that. So, in us, uh, for us to fulfill that purpose, we got to study His ways and how He deals with us and and really come to know the heart of God, not just on a superficial level, but a, on a deeper level. Okay, So, St. Athanasius says, For what use is existence to the creature if it cannot know its maker? Right, And then he continues to elaborate, we mentioned this quote before, that if he created us, it's for us to know him. Otherwise, he created us for something useless. Because... What use is a creature that cannot know its maker? Alright? So, my next question for you is, what type of process is theological learning? And I kind of alluded to this in the very first question I asked you, why study theology? Kind of answered this question as well, but what does this process of learning theology really look like? What type of process is it? So don't don't pay attention to that. I'm, I'm just gonna jump to the next slide as we go through. But I want I want you to just throw your thoughts out. 
what type of process is this whole theological learning process? Progressing. It's okay, it's a progression. So, in what way? Like, it's, a, it's about the journey. Okay. It's about the journey, not the destination. Now, in, in, in this journey, it's important for us to emphasize that it's, it's one of the heart, right? And I kind of alluded to that earlier, but we, we got to recognize it's not like an academic process. It's a process. It's, not, it's, a, it's a journey. It's not about the destination. But this process isn't like the process you see in high school or college where you're just studying a certain text. Okay, it's not uh, an intellectual process, but a process of the heart. Okay? It's a process within the body of Christ. It's the process within the sacramental life of the church. Uh, it's the process that, that you have alone in your room as you experience Christ in prayer, deep down within your heart. Okay? It's a process that's, in a sense, mysterious. It's hidden. There's something secretive about it because it works deep down within. Okay? So even something like learning, you know, we always associate learning with the mind. We associate learning with something intellectual. But when it comes to theology, it's something spiritual. The spirit learns. Okay, so everything we did throughout these six weeks, as academic as it might have seemed, the heart of the matter is actually spiritual. Okay. Okay. Next question: How do we approach this process? This process of communing with Christ within our heart. You know how how do we learn theology? How do we enter into this? Mysterious process. Faith. Okay, perfect. Faith is really important because faith is about surrendering into God's hands. It's about humility. It's about saying, I can't, but you can. Okay, and... and that's the heart of theology because theology comes to us through revelation. And i got to have faith in God's work in revealing Himself to me. So I, I keep going back to contrast this with any sort of academic process. Because whenever you put your mind to a science book, you know, you're going to grasp the material. You're going to study. You're going to put your effort into it. And by your own efforts, by your own intellect, you're going to learn this material. In theology, in our spiritual life, it's the exact opposite. It's God revealing Himself to us. Not us wrapping our mind around God. Right? Instead of putting your mind above the text, you put the text above your mind. You put God's will, God's commandments, God's ways, His whole life, okay, above our minds. So, in Psalms, David says, God is the Lord and has revealed Himself to us. In Psalm 118.26, and in St. Clement Alexandria, common saying, God reveals His truth to people throughout all generations by divine revelation. Okay, so it's important for us to have faith, to have humility, to understand that just as Christ said, no one knows 
the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. So it comes by the will of God, by the revelation of God to men. Alright? Okay, my next question. As we get into the first major theme of our theological studies, we, we spoke a lot about creation. So, what was the purpose of creation? What was the purpose of creation? Salvation. Salvation. Okay. Elaborate. For us to be, I mean, God is love, so he has a, He's expressing His love through us. Right? Okay. And then obviously we distorted that, the, the image. Um, so He had to grant us that. He had to grant salvation. Right? Okay. Good. So the heart of the matter, even when we just summarize it in this, um, in this word, salvation, it's, it's about our experience of Christ, of our experience of God, our experience of His love, right? And, and you know, what, what Jack was alluding to is he, he creating us out of His love reveals to us that the very purpose is for us to experience that love, Okay. We always go back to uh, this this word um, whenever w- we talk about creation that, that God creates ex nihilo. You remember that? God creates ex nihilo. Why? Why is that important for us to to understand? What's the significance of us really stressing that He creates ex nihilo? <laughs> All right, go go for it, Regina. I believe you mentioned that um, creation, that God provided creation so that we could contemplate Him. Very perfect, perfect. So, in for for us to to contemplate God and for us to to know Him, experience Him, He creates us out of nothing, right? So that's what this whole idea of ex nihilo literally means. It's a Latin term for out of nothing. And it really tells us that God had no need to create. That He was complete, that He was perfect as the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity was lacking nothing. But He creates us out of nothing for the sake of His love for us in order to contemplate Him, to know Him. And for us to to really enter into the divine life. Okay? So, it goes to to remind us that everything that God creates out of nothing is for our sake. Not out of any need. He's not some sort of craftsman or um, some sort of like architect or a carpenter that just has a bunch of uh, tools and, and utensils and you know different type of wood that he's putting together to shape or to mold. But he is the creator. He brings all of the material into existence and molds that material as well. Okay? Now, what's revealed to us about God in every act of creation? Love. Very good. We come to know God's love. 
And we come to know something about him more specifically. What's the very, like, um, like same method? What's the method that he uses in every single act of creation aside from man? Because we know when it comes to man, it's a little special, right? But throughout every other creation, there's like a repetitive method that we see. What is it? He spoke. Okay, very good. Now, for him to create in that way, we get a glimpse of who he is, right? What does that tell us about him? He's powerful. Okay, that he's the creator. He is the, the authority that he speaks out of his word. He commands into existence. Very good. What else? He's sovereign. Very good. Now, why doesn't he just like snap his fingers? Or why doesn't he just kind of wink and it comes into existence? Why speaking? More purposeful? Sure, you could say that. What does it reveal about his nature? Okay, let's look at a... A verse from Psalm 33. So in verse 6, David says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all its hosts by the breath or spirit of his mouth. Okay? So what this tells us is that his word, the Logos, who is Christ, the Logos of God, the word of God, is the co-creator, and the spirit, also the co-creator, participate in creation so that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are revealed to us. And we see this from the very first verse in Genesis. And we see that the Trinity always works in every divine act. Okay, Every act of salvation, from creation to incarnation to resurrection to Pentecost and until today in the sacramental life of the Church and within our own personal life, we experience the dynamic life of the Trinity. And that's what's revealed to us from the beginning. Alright? Okay, now, let's fast forward a little bit. And like I told you, we're going to skip a whole lot. But coming into the creation of man, what's so unique about the creation of man? Images. Image and likeness. Okay, perfect. He pauses, right? And he doesn't just say, let there be man. You know, he kind of does something with like a, a little more, uh, you know, something personal, something dramatic, something special. And he says, let us make man according to our image and our likeness. It's almost like he's contemplating. And again, it reveals to us the Trinity because he says, let us make man according to our image and in our likeness. And he molds him out of the dust. And then he does what? Breathes into him. Okay. So, there was something a little bit more deliberate. Something that expressed the superiority or, or, or the honor, the sovereignty given to man when we see God creating in this unique way. Right? Now, what really distinguishes this like you unique outcome from everything else what distinguishes 
the product of this process, this creature, the human being, from any other creature. Like we say that he's created in his image and likeness, but what does that really mean? Okay, okay he has the spirit of God. Very good. He can communicate with God. Very good. Let's take a little step back and just define the difference between image and likeness. Image is DNA, likeness is kind of like the action. Okay, very good. That's a very simple way to look at it. Image is like that divine DNA. Okay, everybody is born with a certain set of DNA. Okay, you're born as a male or a female. You didn't choose it. <laughs> that was just the outcome of the genes you got. Okay? <laughs> and you're, you're born with a certain hair color, eye color, certain height. Um, you're, you're born with certain features. All those things are a product of your DNA. In our image, we have a spiritual DNA. We have a divine DNA, which is basically like the fingerprints of God. Okay? That's what makes us divine. Okay? That's the spirit of God in us. The, the, the divinity that, that elevates us and inclines us to God. So, what does that really entail? What is this, what, what's this divine DNA really all about? What God is by nature, we are by grace. Okay, very good. What He is by nature, we are by grace. Alright, elaborate. What are those things that He is by nature that we are by grace? Authoritative, free, Okay, loving. very good. Authoritative, he is ultimate authority. We also are granted to be the crown of all creation, right? Remember Adam naming the animals, exercising his authority, just like a master would name the, the slave that he would have because he is the owner, he is the master. He is free, right? He's endowed with free will, just as God is freedom. He's a rational creature. He has self-awareness. He has self-consciousness. His intellect. Uh, he can actually invest in his, in his uh, future and think about tomorrow. He's not just driven by impulses. That intellect really elevates him from the impulses of you know, the, the, the animal creatures. Okay. Anything else? You want to mention about the image? What about to be a creator himself? Right? He's given the grace to create, to procreate. That's what don't we call when giving birth procreation? Right? So he's given that grace. So he's given basically to share in the life of God Himself. Right? And all of those things are given by grace. By, by God's goodness, His own free will, His own goodness, His own love gives that to us. Okay. Now, although we are wired in that way, we may not all, always act according to the way we're supposed to. right? Because the other side of the equation is the likeness. Okay? The likeness is just how we act, how we function. You know, a car may be designed a certain way, but it may not really function the way it was designed to function, right? Like a race car may be designed to race with certain tires and an engine and this and that, but 
you might see it going down the road 35 miles per hour, not really acting like a race car, okay? All right, so that's the distinction between image and likeness. Okay, so a quick definition, we can say image is a divine identity of God inscribed in man by God's free gift without any merit or man's part which is never lost. Okay, we never lose that divine DNA. So, for example, freedom, dominion, authority, rationality, immortality, creativity, self-awareness, all that stuff. And unlikeness is how we act according to the way we are wired. Based on the way we're wired, do we act like God? Okay, do we act like Christ? So that's the assimilation of God, the, the virtues, and how much we reflect Him. Okay, how much we resemble Christ. Okay, that depends on our cooperation and the submission of our will to, to His will. How much we're willing to cooperate with God, that life of synergy that, that we mentioned several times. Okay, so my next question is, digging a little deeper into man, what is the difference between body, soul, and spirit? Body, soul, and spirit. Very good. So all living creatures have a body, some sort of physical component, right? And some sort of spiritual component, which is the soul itself, which is the life. Okay? So soul is basically the, the life of that creature. Okay? Um, and in a lot of times it's actually synonymous with, with blood. Okay? So any animal, you, you know, it has blood. It has life in it. Right? It has a soul. It has a living, it, it's called a living soul because it is a, a living, breathing creature. Even when we look at animals that are uh, very low in the animal kingdom, even plants, right? They have a soul. Right? Now the, the distinction for one specific animal is the human being who's endowed with a spirit. Okay? And then the spirit of man basically comes down, brings us back to the image that we talked about. Okay? So in our spirit, we can relate to God. In our spirit, we can connect with the spirit of God because we come face to face with our own likeness. All right? Does that make sense? So that's really the simplest way for us to understand body, soul, and spirit. So, after man is created and he's enjoying life in paradise, we know that he's, you know, wandering around, talking with God, hanging out with the animals. Adam and Eve are, you know, living the good life. But in the middle of paradise, we know there were a couple of trees, right? What were those trees? The tree of knowledge. tree of good and evil. Very good. The tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. What's the difference? Which was which? We picked the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> we picked the wrong one. Okay, so let's just define the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What's that tree all about? 
They just weren't spiritually ready for it. Okay, they weren't spiritually ready. But, but like, what was the tree? Like, essentially, what, what, was, what was so special, unique? What was so mysterious about it? What was the big deal about this tree? What was it? They were just told not to eat of it. They were just told not to eat of it? Okay. They had to stay away from this specific tree. And it's something that they weren't ready for. And the fathers in interpreting this tree all tell us that it was contemplation of God. It was what they were created to have, right? Just like Regina mentioned earlier, this is what we were created for. But a child doesn't really get to know his mom and dad, doesn't really know the extent of his parents' love for him until he starts to grow and to mature and to realize his parents don't really want to give him a hard time just by setting all of these rules that his parents do love him and so on. Right? But that comes with maturity. right? It comes by growth. So this was something good that we were supposed to have. But it was only accessible to men at a certain time. It was only accessible to Adam and Eve whenever they were ready for this solid food. Like when St. Paul says, I have to give you milk because you're not ready for solid food. Right? So this was solid food. This was like the mysteries of God, of knowledge of good and evil. Right? It's knowledge. Literally what the title implies. But they weren't ready for that knowledge because they were still immature. Right? The tree of life, on the other hand, was what? Christ himself, right? The source of life, immortality, right? And that's why after they were exiled from the paradise of joy, God placed a cherub there and he said, they can't return unless they eat of the tree of life and what? And live forever, okay? Because this is what would have given us eternal life. Okay, so after we picked the wrong tree, <laughs> Um, and, and, and we fell. How, well, what, what's the heart of the matter that really caused the consequences of the fall? Disobedience. It's not just disobedience. And that's what I wanted to stress here. Like the heart of the matter that caused the consequences of the fall wasn't just disobedience. There was something a little deeper there. Okay. The disconnected from God. Okay? They separated from the source of life. So our nature was corrupted because we separated ourselves from life. And St. Athanasius even says that we are fading away into non-existence. Because what sort of existence does a creature have without union with its maker, without unity with the source of life, right? So that's what death is, separation from God, okay? So digging a little bit bit deeper into this, how can we define sin? Missing the mark, perfect. In Greek, we say it's Amartyas. Right? Missing the mark. Literally, that's what it means. St. Athanasius has a wonderful definition to expand on this uh, concept. He says that sin 
is the choice of the lesser in comparison to the higher. Because a lot of times we think of sin in a sense of like black and white, right? But this gives us a real, like a pic- pic- perfect picture of, of what sin really is in context of our life. So for example, like this computer that I'm using, it's not really black and white, whether it's good or bad, whether it's righteous or sinful, right? But it can be used in a sinful way if it brings me to a lower level of spirituality, if it separates me from God. You know, if I am just working on uh, my homework or just reading an article or something, my parents come and ask me to help them with like chore in the house or something. You know, reading this article may be good because it's like a, a beneficial article. But the higher choice isn't to continue reading, it is to obey, right? So if I say, no, I don't want to help right now, <laughs> then reading the article could actually be the sin, right? So we got to understand sin as we move through our life as the lesser in comparison to the higher. Not necessarily looking at pornography or adultery or worshipping idols. You know, we, we, we dramatize sin in a sense and what we really fail to recognize is that sin comes to us in, you know, much different pictures, right? Alright, so now we'll wrap up this section with a final question, which is uh, the, the divine dilemma. Right? And, and I want you to, fi- to define for me what this divine dilemma was after the fall and what was its solution. God is a liar would be one concern. The other concern would be us as his creation just going into non-existence. Okay, very good. So we take a little step back to give that a little bit more context, if, if after eating from this tree, we, we do die, and, and if God allows us to die, then He would, would allow His image that He created in us to, be, to become corrupted. Right? So He would be a failure in creating something that perishes. Does that make sense? But if He goes back on His word... And he says, never mind, you're not going to die. Then he becomes a liar, right? And if he just kind of hangs out in between and says, sure, whatever, then, you know, God is just indifferent and it implies his powerlessness. That makes sense? It implies that he's, he's weak, he's incapable, he's incompetent. All right. So what is the solution for this divine dilemma? Well, that would be repentance, but we, we couldn't have just repented because our image itself, our internal wiring was distorted, right? We were by nature corrupted by separating ourselves from God. So what was the solution? Salvation. Well, how, how were we to receive salvation after that? Very good. He pays the debt. Now, He does that through incarnation. incarnation. 
incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, Pentecost, everything that he does for us, we got to look as a whole, is soteriological. Okay? Everything that he does for us is salvific. Not just him becoming man, not just him dying on the cross, but even what he does in between. You know, while he's walking on earth and refining our nature and elevating us, teaching us how to live and so on. Okay? All the way until we look at our lives here, today and now, and we see how he's saving us throughout our life here. Alright, so jumping into the second course. Actually, before we move on. Before we move on. Do you guys have any questions about that? Good recap? Okay, so the second course, part two. We spoke about church history. So my first question for you is, what did Christian life look like in the first couple of centuries? It was as Christ created. It was just united. There's no like different denominations. There's... Very good. Well, a whole lot of divisions, right? But before we can even think of Christianity resisting the, the temptations from the devil dividing us, we've got to look at Christianity forming first. Right? Before we kind of look at it as one solid entity that's now fighting to stay united, uh, we've got to look at it developing in a sense. Right? And, and that's where, what we see in the first couple of centuries. We see Christ in a sense, fulfilling what the Jews were waiting for. So he says, I did not come to, to destroy the law, to break the law or the prophets, but I came to fulfill the law. And in, and in this sense, we look at Christianity as the fulfillment of Judaism. So we kind of see Christianity as, as the one movement from Judaism. Does that make sense? That's why we have so many Judaic traditions, right? We, we weren't, in a sense, like breaking away from Judaism. We didn't say, like, forget the Old Testament, everything the Jews were doing. We didn't say, that's nonsense, let's start something new, okay? We're, in a sense, fulfilling everything that Judaism was pointing to, okay? So, that's how Christianity developed. So, as it's forming, there were... A lot of heresies floating around, right? You remember some of the biggest ones that the church fought against? Arians. Arian. Even before that, what would you say? Is, yeah, what would you say? Like the very earliest ones? Jewish practices. So Judaisms. Judaizers. That's that's how they were labeled, the Judaizers. And you said? Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Very good. So these were probably couple of the biggest ones. How do you define Gnosticism? Knowledge. Okay, this, this special knowledge that this sect was pursuing, or this cult was pursuing, and it claimed that you know, something was good and something was bad. You remember? Yeah. What was good and what was bad? According to them. <laughs> Spirit was good, physical, bad, evil, right? Everything materialistic was evil. 
I remember like Judas even like set Christ free from his flesh by leading him to the cross. That's what they would claim, okay? Because the flesh was evil and that's what Jesus needed in order to attain this ultimate esoteric knowledge. Okay, so that's Gnosticism. Now, some of the fathers that fought against these heresies, we see from the, the earliest period of Christianity, we had the apostolic fathers. And these are the apostles themselves and their disciples, like the first or second generation. A couple of the biggest disciples of the apostles, especially the disciples of St. John, you remember? St. Ignatius and? And St. Polycarp, very good. Okay, so this is probably a couple of the biggest apostolic fathers that, that we know. St. Polycarp was a little younger, so we can even say that he was a disciple of St. Ignatius as well. Yes. Alright, so a couple of other figures. You remember this guy, St. Irenaeus? Okay. What's his deal? What was he all about? What's his story? You remember? Tell me anything about him. Church father. <laughs> Church father. Good. <laughs> Fighting heresies. Okay, he fought heresies. St. Mary. Okay, he's like the father of Mariology. Very good. Okay. <laughs> so, he... He's probably, or I would even say definitely, the most significant second century church father uh, among the, the apologists. All right? And he fought ardently against Gnosticism. One of the biggest things that he is recognized for is really emphasizing this idea of recapitulation. Okay? That Christ assumed all humanity in himself which is like a, like a critical component of soteriology. If, if we don't understand that, we don't understand how Christ saved us at all. Does that make sense? He united us himself. He carried all humanity in himself. And he becomes the second Adam. Okay? Next guy. Among the significant figures in the early church fathers is Saint Clement. You guys remember Saint Clement? Okay, tell me anything about St. Clement. Fought against Gnosticism. Okay, fought against Gnosticism. He's from what? Alexandria. He's from Alexandria. He's excommunicated. He, he was not excommunicated, but he... Oh, sorry, that's Oregon. Yeah. Oregon. Yes, well, he was basically the... The predecessor of Origen, who was excommunicated a little later on. So that's right. Even though, like, Origen's excommunication was questionable in and of itself. But one thing that you can take away from St. Clement, okay, is he didn't fight Gnosticism by rejecting the, the significance of knowledge. But he wanted to... Di- redirect our understanding and the place of knowledge. That he said, look, 
you Gnostics, like, you know, aren't terrible people. You, you, you do realize the significance of knowledge, and it is significant, but you're directing that knowledge to the wrong place. Real knowledge does save you, but it's only knowledge of Christ. Okay? And as much as we know Him, and again, it's not something intellectual, but something within our heart, experiencing God. Okay? Okay. And so, from there we get origin. Tell me something about origin. What's that? He's, <laughs> He's one of my favorite church fathers. He has a, um, where he quotes a lot of the Bible. Or like... Yes. He's one of the greatest scriptural exegesis among all the early church fathers. Yeah, and he has some questionable things about him, like the pre-existence of souls, universal salvation, and some of his Trinitarian theology can get a little convoluted because of the subordination of the Son of Christ, right? But again, those are all little details that you know we can kind of pry into, but uh, we won't we won't do that for our purposes now. Okay, one thing that we can say about his uh, like exegetical commentary that he had in the scriptures is that he would uh, really develop from from Philo, an earlier figure. He would really develop from Philo this idea of allegorical interpretations in the scriptures. Okay, so he really gave birth to our allegorical understanding and symbolical and spiritual understanding of the, the, the hidden words in scriptures. Okay. Alright, now we get into the councils. First ecumenical council, where was it? Nicaea, when was it? 325. How many bishops? 318. Very good. Um, what was on trial? Arianism. And? Sabellianism. Solid. You guys are killing it. Okay. What was Arianism? What was Sabellianism? Arianism is that Christ was created. Christ was created. Sabellianism is the distinction of three persons in the Trinity. Okay. Or well, the failure to maintain that distinction. Right? So that the three persons are like interchangeable, they're, they're distorted, they're kind of meshed into one lump altogether, right? But we can't confuse the person, the Father is the Father, the Son is the Son, the Spirit is the Spirit. We don't say that the Father was crucified just because the Father and the Son is one, that sort of thing, okay? Alright, so who was the bishop, do you remember, the Bishop of Alexandria at this time? It's easy to remember. Well, he was basically the, the Saint Athanasius was the deacon at that time, the deacon of this bishop. It's close to Alexandria. Alexandria, okay, Bishop Alexandria, very good. <laughs> All right, you guys killed it right there. Okay, jumping into the figure you just mentioned, Saint Athanasius. Tell me a little bit more about him. Actually, wait before we get into Saint Athanasius, one critical piece for. Um, the Council of Nicaea is that they defended a, like a controversial term. You remember? That's third. Good though. Homoousios. Very good. Homoousios literally means one or same. What's osio or osios? Essence or nature. Right? That Christ is of the same or one essence, one nature. 
with God the Father. All right? And this was like a Gnostic term, so like threw everybody off, but you know, the church felt like this was the best term that, that God wanted to uh, have, have us use to really emphasize the, the, the theology or Christology at that time. Okay? The Father and the Son are one nature. Yes. And, and then, you know, from there, we get the, the creed. We believe in one God, God the Father, Pentecostal, all of that. All right. Now, St. Athanasius. Tell me something about him. Very good. Disciple of St. Athanasius, which tells us that he was a man of prayer. He was an ascetic. He was a, a, a man of deep spirituality, right? Not just one that sat in a library studying some sort of academic or scholar. Okay. What else? Very good. Okay, he fought against Arius and so many people that were on Arius' side that it felt like the world was against him. And then he responded and say, and I am against the world. Right? That's why he got gets that title, Athanasius Contra Mundum, against the world. Right? Okay. He was deposed five times or exiled. Five, five times out of his patriarchate. Okay, so he was, you know, a, a persecuted man. Okay, he went through a lot. And he gave us you know, so many, you know, brilliant texts in our theology. Alright, next are the Cappadocian Fathers. you remember the Cappadocian Fathers? Who are these guys? Hmm? St. Basil, very good. What was his little brother? St. Gregory. Gregory. Which one? Of Nisa. Of Nisa, very good. And their cousin? St. Gregory. St. Gregory? The theologian. Not the theologian. Well, actually, you can call him the theologian, but the, the, the one from which specific place? No. Nazianzen. Okay. Okay, very good. So, Basil, the big brother, and Gregory Nisa, the little brother, and their cousin, Gregory of Nizianzen. All right? So, these are called the Cappadocian Fathers. They come from Cappadocia, as the name implies, but more specifically, like in Antioch, in that area, where they had to defend the faith against a very specific heresy. And this is what will come to shape their mindset and their point of emphasis throughout much of their writings. So, what was this heresy that they were fighting against? You remember? Yeah. Well, it has to do with that, but more specifically, what part of Christ was compromised? The humanity. The humanity. Good. Remember, Arius compromises the divinity of Christ. This guy compromises the humanity of Christ. Who was this guy? Mm -hmm. Apollinarius? Yes, Apollinarius. Okay, so he said that Christ didn't have a real rational mind, like a real human mind or soul. Okay, And then what the Cappadocian father, especially Gregory Nazianzus, is what he would emphasize is that what is not assumed is not saved. What Christ did not become, Christ did not save. So if he did not become a real human being, he did not save a real human being. Make sense? 
if he did not have a real human mind, then he did not save the real human mind. It's that simple. Alright? So, St. Gregory of Nisianzus was also the presiding bishop over this next council. Do you remember? Constantinople. Okay, very good. So that brings us to the Council of Constantinople, which was when? 381. Okay. How many bishops? 150. Remember the, like, the unique little fun fact about the 150 bishops? Yeah, just one from the West, okay. All right, and what subjects were on trial? Apollinarianism, okay, we already know that one. Very good, and Macedonianism. We already defined Apollinarianism. What was Macedonianism? I can't hear. Very good. So, it just claimed that the Spirit is an energy or like, you know, some like sort of presence, higher power, exactly. But, it, but we know that the Spirit is a real person, right? One person of, of co-equality, of the same nature as God the Father and God the Son, that He is God by nature, all right? And we know that one specific outcome of this council, in addition to defending the faith against these heresies, is that we also got what? Very good. The very end, okay, where where we see that yes, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the Life Giver, proceeds from the Father, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, All right. Very good. You guys are doing awesome. Okay, now a couple of figures in between um, th- this council we just mentioned and the next one that will come up. Uh, the first one is Saint John Chrysostom. Alright, tell me something about him. The golden mouth. That's literally what Chrysostom means. Okay, what else? <laughs> I love him. I love him all. <laughs> also has a lot of um, biblical... Exegesis. Very good. He's just like a commentary monster. Okay? He's a beast. Probably has more commentary than any other church father. And more credible, more reputable... Uh, more reliable uh, than than most of the fathers. All right? Um, so he didn't really... Who student was he? Or was he under who? Uh, well, he was... Yeah, no. Yeah, well, he, he, he was from Antioch. I don't know who he really studied with. I don't remember. Um, but he, he definitely <laughs> was um, aware of all the writings of the, the fathers that preceded him, like, like Athanasius and Origen and... Um, the Alexandrian fathers, and also the Cappadocian fathers that were around at that time. So he was very close to that area because uh, he was in Constantinople along with the, the Gregories and Basil. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the whole area was solid. <laughs> um, you know, he really didn't write much, but most of his sermons were transcribed. All right. So we have here this icon where St. Paul is speaking into him as he's 
commenting on uh, the epistles of St. Paul. Okay, the big five Latin fathers, you remember? Augustine. Augustine is one of them. Augustine. St. Jerome. St. Jerome. Ambrose. 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 Augustine. Who said that? Very, very good. So St. Gregory, Gregory the Great. Okay? And then you could also say B that comes in a little bit later as well, but um, if you don't include B, you can say that those were the five, Ambrose, Jerome, Augustine, and Gregory the Great. All right? So we don't have time to really dig into uh, their life. But getting into the Third Ecumenical Council, which is the last one for this section, what was that all about? Okay, very good. The title of St. Mary was on trial because what was about Christ that was compromised? Right. Hmm? No, this, per, this heretic believed that Christ was divine. He did something to Christ that was blasphemous. He separated him. Okay, very good. He said the, this, uh, this doctrine of the two sons. Okay. What was his name? Yes, I hear it. Nestorius. Okay, very good. So Nestorius taught that Christ was like these two separate persons. All right. And in this sense, he taught that St. Mary gave birth to a regular human being that later was united to the Divine Son. So this human son and then this Divine Son come into union and live like some sort of schizophrenic, like, you know, the, the, yeah, this duality that exists in them. Um, it's almost like Venom, if you've ever seen the movie. <laughs> like these two people talking to each other. <laughs> Alright, so now, in this council, which was, you remember when? For 31, very good. How many bishops? 200. Where was it? Ephesus. In Ephesus. Very good. And it rejected Nestorianism. It reaffirmed the Nicene Creed. Okay. And it also reaffirmed the title of Theotokos. Right? Because we believe that St. Mary gave birth to God, the Logos. So she is the mother of God. Not just the mother of Christ, because that's true that she's the mother of Christ, but if we just say Christotokos, that may fail to imply that she also gave birth to God. Okay? So it's not wrong to say that she's Christotokos, but if we stop there, you might be implying what Nestorius was implying. Right. Okay, so what was, who was the champion at this time? What father is championed with defending the faith? St. Cyril of? Alexander. Good. St. Cyril of Grace. So in this icon, he's holding the icon of? Mother Mary. The Theotokos. Very good. All right. Any questions or comments? He's doing real good. <laughs> good. Good job. All right. Part two. I think this section will be a little quicker. So we're getting into the latter part of the history, right? So... 
more uh, comparative theology. My question, first question for you is um, the, the very first council that we see that causes some sort of schism in a faith is the council of Chalcedon. So what was the deal here? What was this council really all about? Politics and power, and nature of Christ, and yeah, and some terminology, some semantics about the nature of Christ. All right. So remember, there was this monk Eutyches that came in and said something that was a little off, like that you know Christ was uh, one nature in the sense of saying that his divinity consumed his humanity, right and Discourse at this time corrected the matter. Um, you know, Pope Leo didn't like it. The Council of Chalcedon happened, and because he knew that he was gonna um, be excommunicated once he showed up, he did, he rejected the invitation three times. And since he didn't show up, they just excommunicated him as well. So it was just a big mess, politics and semantics and things like that, right? So at the end of the day, it's really unfortunate what happened. But for us to really look back and to understand that um, there were no real theological issues here. So even until now, this separated the church into the Eastern and Oriental Orthodox parishes or churches or denominations. But there are no real theological differences between the two. All right. Um, our perspectives and our emphasis certainly differ, and that might make uh, you know, an impact on how you look at your faith and how you look at Christology, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, it's not much. Um, now, we're going to skip the councils in between the 5th and the 6th one. And again, we don't recognize those councils anyways because we were just like kicked out. <laughs> but there's, there's something significant in the 7th council. Again, we don't recognize this either because we didn't participate in it. But what was significant about the 7th council, you know, this happened in, in the Eastern Orthodox Church. But it's still important for us to recognize what it, what it you know, implied. You guys remember? Oh, that's in Constantinople. That's the, yes, that's the second ecumenical council, which actually caused some political problems. So that's, that's important too. But in the seventh council, something really sacred was on trial. Hmm. They rejected iconoclasm. Very good. So that was the outcome. In the beginning, you know, they, they rejected icons. Okay? Which was something sacred, something important, something holy. Is that not the same thing? Yeah, same thing. But the outcome was that they rejected iconoclasms, which is the rejection of icons. Okay? So, this is the, the iconoclasm... Uh, is, is basically the heresy, 
is basically the the notion that icons are Idol. uh, are idols. You know, it's something Id- idolatrous to have icons. Okay, we were, we we recognize that all matter is created sacred. And I remembered a quote from Saint John. See if I can pull it up. Okay, very good. I do not worship matter. I worship the God of matter, who became matter for my sake and deigned to inhabit matter, who accomplished my salvation through matter. I'll not cease from honoring that matter which works for my salvation. I venerate it, though not as God. This is St. John of Damascus. And now, jumping into the first like real heresy that branches off of Christianity, Islam, right? So, where and how did Islam start? It was all a dream. <laughs> it was definitely all a dream. Okay, so Muhammad has his dream. <laughs> I had a dream. <laughs> okay, a prophetic of Biggie, but... <laughs> One man's dream. And then, you know, from, from this um, came the, the Qur'an. And from the Qur'an... We have all of the teachings of, of Islam, which is really emphasizes uh, really emphasizes um, like holy wars and the the, the five pillars that, uh, that that we we recognize. Do you remember what those five pillars were? Very good, shahada, which is the confession. I testify that. There's no God but God, and I testified that Muhammad is the prophet of God. Second one was Salah, which is like the Salah, praying. It's very easy to recognize the words in Arabic. So they would pray like five times a day facing Mecca. Then uh, Zakat is the almsgiving. Number four is Psalm, which is like Sum, fasting. Um, and number five is Hajj, is the, the pilgrimage to Mecca. All right. So this is basically like a Christian heresy, okay? And we we dug into the the problems with its uh, origin and how it really developed, right? But we won't have time to get into all of that right now. Um, now going back within Christianity, we see that the first greatest division within Christianity is not actually what happened in Chalcedon. Chalcedon was, was small relative to this next one. Because Chalcedon, remember, the Oriental Orthodox Church was just like less than a quarter, like maybe like 15-20% compared to the rest of the mainstream body of Christianity. What happens in 1054 that becomes the first real, almost you know, precise split in dividing Christianity into two? The Great Schism, okay? And here we have the split from the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholic Church. Alright? So, what caused it? That's later. Remember a couple of things. Okay, the filioque, and something that um, frustrated 
the the Eastern Orthodox side a little bit, which was the you know, position of the Pope, right? Okay, so we have ecclesiology, the papal supremacy or infallibility, which was a big reason in causing the schism. Because remember, Rome was elevating the position of the Pope, all right? And, and with that was a lot of like legalities and abuse, indulgences and things like that, okay? Um, and some theology that was also significant was the filioque, some, that, the pessimism in anthropology. Um, we spoke about Anselm of Caterbury, who's taught you know, this idea of penal substitution, right? And then this absolute transcendence of God that he is this, you know, unmoved mover. All right. So those are the remarkable differences within the Catholic Church. But again, we have like many saints that come from the church and it's a church filled with uh, the presence of God. Now, something that happens shortly after 1054, which really stresses the division between the East and the West, was a series of events, you remember? Good, the Crusades. What were the Crusades really all about? Very good. So, the Crusades were basically... Christians, uh, predominantly peasants or, or lower class, middle class, lower class working men that, that were, were going to battle. Even though it was a, a spiritual journey, like a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and the Holy Lands, they were going to, to fight and, and win back their, their land. All right? So what was the impact after these series of crusades happened? It, yeah, it it basically stressed the division between the East and the West. Um, it definitely failed to retrieve the Holy Land. And if anything, it just elevated the papal authority because it, it was really the Pope that was dri- driving these, these, these trips okay, or these pilgrimages. Make sense? Any questions there? No? All right. And and by the way, there were, we can say there are about four major crusades, although there's about like eight or nine in total, if you count all the, the smaller ones. All right, now we come to the last major schism or division within Christianity. And this comes in 1517. Do you remember what this is? Reformation. Good. So, the Protestant Reformation, and you mentioned a significant name here, which is Martin Luther. Alright, so... What was the Reformation? And what caused it? He's had enough of all the legalities of the Catholic Church. Very good. It was basically a backlash to the opposite extreme of what was happening in the Roman Catholic Church. There was a lot of 
uh, emphasis on traditions and legalities and papal supremacy and the position of the Pope, the, the little bit of priest corruption and indulgences and things like that. It was a dark time. And Martin Luther was sick of it. So he said, let's throw it all out. Okay? But in fighting against all these issues, he threw out what with the, with the bathwater? <laughs> he threw out the baby with the bathwater. So he got rid of you know, tradition as a whole, and he came up with, remember, five what? Solas. Five solas. You remember what the five solas were? Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Sola Christus. Good. Sola Dia Gloria. So only the scriptures are the sole authority in our life. Sola Fide is faith, are you saved by faith alone? And Sola Gratia is that it is the grace of God who moves in your heart. Remember, um, he didn't like this emphasis on works and he wanted to emphasize that it's grace that saves you. And, you know, it was only Christ. He didn't like the position of priests in the church and all the authoritative figures and um, the, the, the Pope and all of that stuff. Um, and finally, sola dia gloria is only God is due glory because he didn't like the position of saints and asking for intercessions and all that. All right? We also have the Institutes from John Calvin, which played a role in teaching the church. Um, the, the, the Reformed churches. All right. Any comments or questions here? No? Yeah. Very good. What anti-reformation? The Catholic Church cleaned itself up like I'm not sure. Anti-reformation. Okay. So we'll take a quick little break. We'll come back. And I think the next few uh, sections will, will take us about like half at a time. Um, and we'll wrap up there. All right, we're back. So, part four is ecclesiology and the scriptures. Okay, so with this, my first question for you is what's the role of the scriptures in our life? They're a tool, but it's not the only, it's not the final say on everything. Okay, very good. It's it's a, it's a critical tool that God gives us to live by, but it's not the ultimate authority in our life, right? It's a little surprising to hear that at times, okay? But why don't you elaborate on what I mean by that? Because the church is the mother. Very good. Okay, so the church is basically like the pillar upon which the scripture stands, because we receive the scriptures from... They interpret the scriptures. They interpret the scriptures. We interpret, we interpret it by the lens of the church. We receive the scriptures from the church. All right? So, um, yes, the scriptures are, are the word of God. And, and they sanctify us, they purify us. Christ says, now you're already clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. And we emphasize how it's not just by understanding that we're sanctified. Or, or even, we typically say, by applying, which is you know, ultimately what we all aspire to do. But it's, it's none of that. 
that you know Christ mentions here. He says that just hearing me sanctifies you. Even if you fail to understand, even if you fail to apply, the scriptures are so significant, so powerful, filled with so much grace, that to just allow that seed to enter into your heart, to hear his word, not just with your ears, but with, with the spiritual ears, within the depths of your heart, that sanctifies us. That's how critical the scriptures are in our life. Okay, But we got to understand the scriptures in the context of the church. That's why we don't say that uh, we believe in this idea of sola scriptura. Okay, In the Protestant Reformation, they wanted to throw out the authority of the church, and so they said, sola scriptura. Scriptures alone. That's the only source of authority in our life. All right? But the problem with that is, you know, we, we run into so many issues. What are some issues that we mentioned that we run into with this idea of sola scriptura? You throw out tradition. Okay? Tradition is important for like, so many things that aren't spelled out in the scriptures. You know, the scriptures don't spell out for us how to fast and pray, what liturgical calendar to follow. Uh, the scriptures don't tell us how to practice the sacraments. You know, they give us a mindset, they give us a foundation. But there are so many things that aren't spelled out for us, and that's why the traditions are important. Um, you know, St. Paul, in writing to Timothy, he says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. Okay? And in Thessalonians he said to hold on to these traditions. Why? Because it is preserved in the pillar and the ground of truth, which is the church. Alright. Um, the church also protects us from our own personal interpretations. Error. Our own errors. And like we mentioned so many issues with Sola Scriptura, but the biggest issue that we got to be aware of here and protect ourselves from is the personal interpretations that come along with Sola Scriptura. And this is what produces heresy. Okay? Whenever everything is just subject to my own interpretation, then what's to guard me even if I have good intentions Nothing. from making a mistake? Nothing. Nothing. So I got to use the church as my framework, as my lens. Okay. It's funny, I mentioned before too, the word heresy, it literally means to choose. It's like self-determination and what to believe. Okay. So I, I determine... What I want to believe or what I want to emphasize on. All right. Now, next question for you is in, in putting the validity of the scriptures to the test, we used a few tools. Okay. One thing we looked at is the historicity of the scriptures, Right. So I want you to define for me historicity and tell me how we measure it. All right? 
So what is historicity? And how do we measure the historicity of you know, certain historical documents? Okay. Okay. So it's basically the, the accuracy of how, how valid, how trustworthy, how reliable this text may be in as much as we can affirm it is written at the time that it was claimed to have been written and by the person which claimed to have written it. Okay? That's one thing that we use to measure it. Right? Those are quotes. Alright? So we said three things are critical to measure the historicity of something. You said what? Okay, very good. So there's time gap. We mentioned the, the quotes that reference that specific text which tells us, you know, this text did exist. Okay? And there was one more thing. You remember? The number of manuscripts. Very good. So the time gap, which was basically the amount of time between the, the oldest copy of that document that's in existence and when the first original one was actually written. Okay? And again, the shorter the time gap, the more reliable that we can say, well, this uh, really does prove proves that the original document must have existed because we have several copies of it just like a short time after it supposedly uh, had been written. The number of manuscripts basically tells us how many copies we have of that original. And the quotes basically tell us how many people outside of this specific text reference that text okay and again we, we just spoke about how how much evidence um, proves the historicity of the scriptures and that when you look at the time gap the number of manuscripts and the quotes they're by far more overwhelming and more credible than any other historical document okay now in addition to the historicity of something else that doesn't tell us that this text really was written but that tells us this text was true. What's that called? Authenticity. Okay? That, sure, it wasn't just written, but it was real. It was authentic. It wasn't just fabricated. Okay? There wasn't like a hidden agenda to manipulate facts in history and you know, to write your own version of the story. So, we look at the reliability of authorship to prove authenticity. And we look at all of the, the internal components of the text that, that fit to make it a sound document. You know, whether there are like personal motives like hidden agendas that the author might have to manipulate the authenticity or the accuracy or the honesty of the text right so that's how we measure the authenticity and again we spoke about how when when you put the scriptures to the test academically according to all of the rules of scholarship nothing withstands with flying colors more than the scriptures 
Right? We have so many extra biblical references in the scriptures too that we mentioned, you know, from Jewish texts and, you know, everything else outside of Christianity. All right, now, getting into the actual Bible, how do we understand the Bible as a whole? Okay, so one question is, is the Bible inerrant? Yes. Inerrant. Is the Bible inerrant? Would it be accurate? No. Okay, so it's a tough question to ask because, you know, we say it is inerrant in as much as it relates to the truth of who God is. And as much as it relates to spiritual truth. But if we're going to get nitpicky to like scientific details and like biological facts and historical, you know, details and stuff, you know, then, you know, we're going to fall into so many loopholes because the authors were concerned with preserving the truth, not concerned with like expressing a historical outline of something that happened. Like they weren't biologists, they weren't scholars. I mentioned the story whenever um, you look back in Joshua, whenever the sun was like standing still, right? All of those things come and tell us, okay, yeah, technically that's not true, you know? But, you know, whenever you say, I watched the sunset tonight, doesn't make you a liar. Just because <laughs> technically that's a false statement. You didn't watch the sunset. <laughs> Okay. The sun doesn't really set. But, you know, you guys need me to actually explain that? Or no, you good? <laughs> the earth rotates. Okay. <laughs> All right, anyways. So, remember the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yes. Okay. What were they? Isaiah. Or ancient scrolls that were found in the Dead Sea. Like okay. Caves. Very good. Ancient documents found in caves near the Dead Sea. All right, they were found in 1948 and, uh, you know, dispersed over 11 caves for about the 12 following years. They were digging up more and more scrolls. What was the significance from these scrolls? They're Greek. Okay, so a lot of Greek texts, Hebrew texts, and things like that. But one of the biggest things that we can come out of this is that it gives us uh, historical documents that date as far back as the first century. And prior to that, the oldest record we had of the Old Testament was from like 1000 AD. So here it brings the time gap, you know, farther back by a thousand years. And we see out of all of the, the Old Testament writings, more of them were in line with the Septuagint text than the Masoretic or the Hebrew. Right? Now, brings me to my next question, which is, what is the Septuagint and what's its significance? Because remember? Yeah, additional books, right? Okay. It had, has some books that are missing from the Masoretic or the Hebrew text. Where did it come from? What is it exactly? Apart 
Okay. 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 Here's here's a cheat cheat sheet. Sept. Okay. Perfect. Seventy. Okay. Okay. Very good. What was translated from what to what? Good. What was Hebrew? Old Testament. So translating the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. This was in what year? 1948. No, that was the discovery of the Dead Sea. We're talking about the, <coughs> the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. We're talking about when the Septuagint was translated. Uh, good, very good. Like 3rd century BC or 4th, 3rd century BC uh, under Ptolemy, like 250. Okay, but we, we, we see that it was like in the works um, from uh, Alexander the Great after the Hellenistic movement from the 4th century and then getting into the 3rd centuries whenever we have uh, the actual text that was translated and then throughout the next few years as well, more text was added into the Septuagint to finalize the whole Greek version of the Old Testament. This is just significant because um, we know that the disciples, the apostles, all the fathers quoted the Old Testament and when they did, it was more in line with the Septuagint. And Christ himself, when we see him quoting the Old Testament as he spoke and what's recorded in the Gospel accounts, what did he reference more closely? The Septuagint. Very good. Alright. So, what's the general structure of the Old Testament? Five books of Moses. Okay. So, that's the Torah. The five books of Moses. There's three parts. We have the Torah. We have the... The Prophets. And the Wisdom Books. Okay. So, it's technically called the Tanakh. Okay, T and K. There are no vowels in the Hebrew language. So when you pronounce T and K, it's Tanakh. Okay? The Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. Does that make sense? So the Nevi'im are the prophet, the, the books of the prophets. And the Ketuvim are like, literally they're called the writings, the other writings which comprise the wisdom books and so on. Other miscellaneous writings. Okay, so we have how many Old Testament books? Forty-nine. Okay, sixty-six in total. So you guys are—you're right. You're just um, answering in regards to uh, seventy-six in total. You're answering in regards to the Old and the New Testament together. Okay. All right. Very good. Now, I remember one way we could look at the history of salvation in the Old Testament. We said we could look at it in like a, like a bird's eye view, right? And in, in that way, how could we break it up, this history of salvation? How many periods, for example, can we, can we look at in the whole history of salvation, God working with humanity... From the first point to today. Four, five. 
that we had these 12 periods, remember? Right? And then we, we referenced walking with God as the main resource for us to really use in like explaining these 12 periods. So we have like the early world, the patriarchs, Egypt and Exodus, desert wanderings. And you know, out of every period, there's a specific text that will give you a better context of what was happening, right? And that gives you like a better picture to understand the historical development of salvation. Okay? I'll send it to you, don't worry. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I do. I promise you'll get it today too. All right, now for the New Testament. Okay, how was it composed? How did the New Testament become the New Testament? That it was canonized. First, first century, the, old te- the New Testament was written. Okay, the oldest one we know is from uh, Saint John, uh, the Apocalypse or Revelations. Um, or, or, you know, the gospel as well. But everything was written before the end of the first century. But it wasn't actually compiled as these 27 letters that we have today in our New Testament until when? Like St. Athanasius was the first one to really mention these 27 books. Prior to that, um, Clement and Origen mentioned a list that was a little bit bigger. But that's not what we actually have today because it got condensed a little bit. And then by the end of the 4th century, you know, in, in the um, Council of Carthage, we have um, the canon validated and it basically becomes fixed that these 27 books that we have are the New Testament. Okay, so St. Athanasius was in 367 AD and then we have a few other councils that continue to reaffirm that. Does that make sense? So it's important for us to understand the first four centuries, Christians didn't really have a fixed Bible. Okay, they were living by the authority of the church. And there was definitely no scarcity in, in holiness at that time. Okay? Like there, it was a time of holiness and martyrdom and, and real growth. So it goes to tell you that when we live by the church, you know, people learned in the liturgies, they learned by the tradition, they learned in the community, which is so critical, we kind of belittle that sometimes now. All right. What is the lens that we say is the way for us to learn the scriptures? Very good. Okay, so even in the Old Testament, somebody will read the Old Testament and they will come to... The very same passage, okay? Someone within the, the Jewish faith, for example, will read the example of Abraham and Isaac. And, you know, may not make, make much of that specific passage, but for a Christian to read that, he sees uh, uh, something foreshadowed there. He sees the cross and he sees salvation. Uh, just like Christ said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced, right? Because... When you see that passage in the whole Old Testament through Christ, you see everything in a different light. Right? Second uh, Corinthians three, Saint Paul says, "Wherein their minds, their minds were blinded, for until the day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ." 
All right, now, any comments, questions there? Good? So the Septuagint was additional books with the Old Testament? No, well, it was basically the, the, the Old Testament as a whole, okay? But whenever we look at that in comparison to what we have of the Hebrew text, the Old Testament, which is the Masoretic text, we'll see that it's missing a few books. Does that make sense? So they preserved more of the original text at that time. And the Jews were all in favor of that text. It wasn't until the 3rd century AD that many of the Jews said, forget the Septuagint because it was more in line with the, the, the Christian faith. Does that make sense? But it was the Greek translation that just yeah. contained more. Yeah, it was literally the Old Testament. Okay. The Greek version of the Old Testament. right? It just has a few extra books because somewhere along the line, they were dropped in the Masoretic text. Okay. And then weren't they the Catholics and Protestants not found them? So, the, the Protestants were trying to really strip away as much of tradition as possible. So that one's clear to recognize. Like, you know, Martin Luther was trying to get rid of James because he didn't like what was in there. And some of the Old Testament texts, um, which is unfortunate because there's so much beauty in those texts. The Catholic Church, I'm not sure how they were, um, how they fell away from that text. But I would have to say that some has to do somewhere with the Vulgate because that's the Latin translation of the Old Testament. So in addition to the Septuagint and the Masoretic, we have something called the Vulgate. I didn't get into that just for the sake of time, but this is um, what we have. Remember at the time of those four great Latin fathers? Um, this is where the, the, the Vulgate comes into the picture. So it could be somewhere in the translation that some of these books were also missing. All right. Now, for part five, we look at the sacraments. Now, before we talk about any specific details about the sacrament, we got to go back to an essential question that we spoke about when we introduced the scriptures, which is the church, right? So, what is the role of the church, or how was our understanding of the role of the church in our salvation as a whole? To dispense the sacraments. Good. So the church is what gives us the sacraments, right? And we kind of use this icon of the church as the ark, right? Because we, we emphasize outside of the church there is no salvation. The church is the ark of Noah. Just like everybody at that time, if you didn't hop on the ark... <laughs> What happens? You're not on board. <laughs> you fall behind. Right. So, this is how we got to understand the church in our life, especially when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to our growth and the sacramental life that we experience um, within the church. All right. So, I'll just mention this quote. Father Thomas Hopkins says, The church... As the gift of life eternal is by its very nature, in its fullness and entirety, 
a mystical and sacramental reality. It's the life of the kingdom of God given already to those who believe. So in the church, we have the sacramental life. This is where we experience uh, every single sacrament. There's, There's nothing outside of the church. Not, not just the seven, because we remember we said numbering them in a sense seems to like, kind of fall away from the, the, the proper way to understand the sacraments. Who is Thomas Hopko? Thomas Hopko is, is a, a wonderful theologian. Um, he passed away a few years ago from the Greek Orthodox Church. Okay, so what is a sacrament? Mystery. It's a mystery. Very good. So using the word mysteries is even better than just saying sacrament. We say the mysteries or the sacraments because there's something hidden, something secret in there. In Arabic we say al-asrar. The the sacraments are the secrets. Okay. Alright. So we can define it by saying a sacrament is an invisible or mystical grace Translated through a visible or physical aspect. And always for the individual's transformation. The very purpose of the sacrament, of the sacramental life as a whole, is our transformation is for us to come into the life of Christ, to participate in His life and to be transformed into who He is. So everything sacramental is transformational. It's always through the work of the Spirit by a clergy, and a certain physical component. Do you remember why we use something physical? We always have something physical. Do you remember? This physical nature is sacred. Right? So it it returns the the, the nature back to its original function in the sacramental life. Right? We, we spoke about how like, Adam would meditate on everything in creation and the purpose of everything that existed was to bring his mind to contemplation of God. Okay? It was a tool for his transformation. It was to produce in man deification. It was to elevate him into contemplation of God. So in a sacramental life, we return to that. That's why we use physical component. We use bread and wine for the body and blood of Christ. Alright. My next question for you is as we dive into the sacraments, where do we start? What sacrament? The Eucharist. The Eucharist. Baptism is first in line whenever we look at a chronological order. Because it's the sacrament of initiation. But for us to understand the proper place of every sacrament, we got to first dive into the Eucharist because that's the core of all the sacraments. Right? Good. So, we say the sacrament of the Eucharist is Evcharistia, right? It literally means what? Right? Thanksgiving. But if we dig into it, in a more literal translation, it's to receive good grace, right? Like Cindy just mentioned. Like that word in there, charis. Ev charistia, which is grace. 
right? We start with the sacrament of, of the Eucharist because in this sacrament we find every other sacrament. This is the fullness of the sacramental life. There was never a sacrament that was practiced outside of the Eucharist, right? So in, in the Eucharist we receive eternal life. In the, in, the, in the Eucharist, there's so much more than, than just partaking of Christ. But again, if we talk about the liturgy as uh, a, a sort of catechism, something that educates us, and the, the liturgy is something where we as a community, as a body of Christ, come into union and fellowship with one another, those are amazing, but in in comparison to the essence of partaking of immortality, partaking of His divinity, sharing in the life of Christ, nothing compares. So that's, that's the essence. But again, we have all those other benefits as well. Right? We mentioned, I think, there's more than 200 references to the Scriptures. In the Liturgy of the Faithful, not even considering the Liturgy of the Word, and Matins, Vespers, the other parts of the Liturgy, but... We see, like, we learn so much in the, in, the, in the church. And that's why we see the sacramental life really fulfilled in, in the church. Alright, so, just like Jacob was saying, baptism is the first one in our chronological order, this development. And... Before we come to describe it and its significance, let's just define it. What is baptism? Repentance. Change. Repentance? Change of heart. Change of heart? Okay. What did you say? Renewal. Renewal. Very good. All of those things are, are, are important. We, we, we think of it as the death of the old man and the birth of the new, the man. Birth of the new man. The resurrection of the new man. So the model for our definition is always Romans 6, 3-4. Do not know it as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Right? So we're baptized into Christ with Him through baptism and into His death, and then the new man comes to life. That's why we always wear white, right? Resurrection, new life. That's what baptism is all about. Next sacrament. Chrismation. What's chrismation? Sanctification. Okay. We're sanctified. We're filled with the Spirit. Okay. This is where we receive the Spirit and we become in a sense, Christified, because that's literally what chrismated means, to be Christ. Like, the very first word of chrismation is Christ. And what Christ means is chosen or anointed. So we become the chosen one, the anointed one. The one that is dedicated for a specific purpose. We're filled with the Spirit, and we're consecrated, we're sanctified, dedicated to the life of God. All right? Again, it's different from baptism because baptism is the renewal, the rebirth. Chrismation is the receiving of the Spirit. 
That make sense? Do you do both at the same No. Consecutively. But they're separate sacraments. They're always linked. You gotta think of the all this at the same time? No, or? at the same like Yeah, you do it back to back, but like it's 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 its own thing. Okay. You know, baptism happens, then it's done, <laughs> right? Then chrismation. Then after that, you know, what's every sacrament always directed towards? Communion. Communion, the Eucharist. So you're you're reborn, you receive the Spirit, and then you're united with Christ through His body and His blood. All right, all separate sacraments but really united and all revolve around the Eucharist. Very good question. Okay, so next sacrament is holy orders or priesthood. Okay, so what's the sacrament all about? Okay, why have priests and holy orders, and all of that stuff. To administer the sacraments. Okay, good. So, it is by this grace that the priest receives that the priest can administer the sacraments. And so, without that, then we have no sacramental life. And that's where we have the fellowship within the church. There's organization and there's order. Otherwise, everybody would just come in and do whatever they want. We... We were talking about how uh, Aaron's sons like came in and just wanted to worship however they want, but because they weren't priests, um, like they offered incense to God and, and, and they died. Right? <laughs> Seems harsh. But you know, God wants us to have organization and worship, not every man for themselves, but it's the one who is chosen, not the one who wants to appoint himself. And that's why the, uh, yeah, a priest is never self-appointed. All right. See in John 20, 22 and 23, Christ himself establishes this. And he says, when he had said this, he breathed on him and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they're retained. Right? He makes them priests. He equips them with the grace to forgive sins. Right? So this now throws us into the next sacrament, which is what? Marriage. Confession. Confession. Very good. Which is the forgiveness of sins. Right? So this leads us to the sacrament of confession. Okay, so confession is actually a part of the whole, which is what? Like a life of repentance. Okay? And we don't think of it as this like dark, gloomy process filled with like shame and stuff. Although, you know, confronting the shame is a part of it. And, and dealing with your mistakes and confronting your sins is a part of it, but we bring it to the light of Christ in hope. So the, the purpose is for us to renew our joy. And like, like St. John Clemente says, the tears of repentance are greater than baptism itself. Yeah, it's a bold statement, but because this is where we receive a new life, our joy is renewed. All right? Okay? Like every sacrament, this finds its root in the Scriptures. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. James 5.16 And we spoke about how this is a part of the Eucharist, a part of the liturgy. We, we never 
had confession happening uh, individually like like we see now and so many of the sacraments are divorced from the the liturgy All right. speaking of divorce no pun intended yeah. and and speaking of another sacrament that's divorced from the Eucharist, we come to marriage. All right. So, what is marriage? You have man and wife to with God. Do you become one. Very good. The two become one. This is what Christ Himself defined. It's not a social contract. It's not like a legal agreement, right? A lot of times people say like, "Okay, it just doesn't work." We kind of just you know, go our separate ways. But we see, Christ said, what, what, what God has joined together, no man break apart. Unless, you know, we come to the exceptions where we see any sort of, like, uh, abuse or uh, adultery, things like that. Um, but those are the exceptions. Okay? Again, where was matrimony always present? In the liturgy, within the Eucharist. The two are joined by the Spirit and they had right to right to Christ, right to the Eucharist, okay? And that becomes their source of union, right? All right, we come to the last sacrament that we spoke about. This is the unction of the sick. Tell me something about this. Hmm? Not exactly. It's the laying of the hands. Yeah, well, I mean, with this, this is always through my rune, but you know, in, in the early church, um, the bishops would, would lay their hands in, in, in chrismation, but after Christianity was growing, you know, they had to administer the sacraments to the priests, and so they started to use the mayrun. The, the bishops would come, and they would consecrate this, my rune by laying of their hands on it, and then the bishops w- would give that to the priests so that they could now use that which was blessed or consecrated by the bishops. Okay, but the, the ones who are sick, right, just like James says, um, to, to call for the elders and, and to pray for him and, and, and for, him to be, yeah, for him to be anointed, right? He says, if anyone among you, is anyone among you sick, let him call for the presbyters of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil, in the name of the Lord and the prayer of the faith will heal the sick. It's a blessing of the understanding of it's not necessarily going to grant physical. Exactly. Exactly. So, w- what we pray for is physical and spiritual healing, right? But what God is primarily concerned with is the salvation of the soul, right? And we know that God may allow the suffering to persist for the sake of the, for that individual's sanctification. Just like he allowed for St. Paul. And so many of the saints, like this, the list is endless. How many saints would heal others, but God would allow their illness to persist because, that, because he, he granted them the grace of sharing in his sufferings. And so that became a source and a tool for their sanctification. Hey, it's okay. also that this, this strength made in our weakness. Exactly. So in, in our weaknesses during the time of uh, our frailty and weaknesses and sicknesses, we come to recognize his, his strength like, like he tells St. Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. 
For my strength is made perfect in weakness. All right? Any comments or questions about the sacraments? Okay? The very last section is just going to take a couple of minutes. I only have like three or four questions. Because <laughs> I, I didn't plan to go into details with all of the virtues, but I just want to cover the general concept of uh, salvation, spirituality, and theosis. All right. So my first question is, how, how are we saved? Good. It's a process. Saved. We're saved, of course, by grace. Um, but what what does this process really look like? So is it, is it just grace? Because you mentioned grace, and of course, that's at the heart of it. We have to cooperate. Very good. To cooperate. There's something called synergia. Like we mentioned that Greek term several times. Just simply synergy, cooperation with God. Right? Even though he's doing 99.9%, we still got to do that 0.1%. Alright? So, it's a process, not about the destination. I love this quote from John Meinhardt. He says, This life is not godliness, but the process of becoming godly. Not health, but getting well. Not being, but becoming. Okay? Alright. So, my next question is, What's the purpose of our life? Like in this process, it almost brings you right back to the very first lecture, right? And we said that the purpose of our life is what? To become God. To know Him. To become God-like. To become all that He is. Exactly. All right? And that's where we get this idea of theosis. Mm-hmm. Right? Literally, it means to become all that God is. And that's why... In Genesis, he says, let us make man according to our image and our likeness. This is how we're designed, and this is the purpose for our creation. So, we see the fathers all commenting on this. We spoke about all the, the fathers that mentioned this. That God became man, that man may become God. Right? And, and we don't understand that like our own essence or nature is transformed into something entirely different. Right? But... We, we think of this as reflecting God to the extent that all others see is Christ. All others see is the light of Christ, the joy of Christ, the love of Christ. They see everything in me to the extent that I reflect Him. Alright, so a, a, a lot of times you'll hear um, the word deification or sanctification um, and, and, and that also like implies the same uh, sort of concept. Some of the fathers will use different words to explain that. All right? But in essence, we, we remain in our identity who we are, still human beings. And through a very simple process, a practical process of life in the church, of participating in the sacraments, of reading the Bible, of praying and fasting and using all these tools, like going back to everything our third grade Sunday school teacher taught us, we become sanctified, we become deified, and we become all that God is through His grace. Okay? All that He is by nature, we become through His grace as a, as a gift. Alright? So, 
That's exactly how this process looks like. Where did we say that this process starts? Very good. Okay. So in receiving the Spirit, right? Because after we are reborn through baptism, we're chrismated, and then we have entrance into the Eucharistic life. Right? And what's at the core of what God has given us for our transformation? What do I always stress? Going back to what? The Eucharist, right? Through the Eucharist, we're transformed into that which we receive. Okay? And, and this is not just from Archmenedrite, Christophorus, Stavropoulos, but all the fathers emphasize this over and over and over again. The Eucharist is at the core of what God has given us to sanctify us and to deify us. Alright? So, from this, we enter into this process of reflecting the qualities of Christ. So what do we call the qualities of Christ? Virtues. The virtues. Okay? Virtue. Right? And we're called to have virtues. Right? But, it's something we've got to be careful with. Is our purpose in life to chase virtues? No. Not exactly, right? We're not just trying to chase peace. We're not just trying to chase a life of obedience because that's not the very purpose of it. Purpose is to pursue Christ, is to be united to Him. And in as much as I'm united to Him, and in as much as I know Him in a deep, intimate relationship with Him, in as much as I reflect Him, I will consequently have his qualities, which are those virtues. But the purpose is his heart, to pursue his heart, to have everything that he is. Okay, so this is what Saint Porphyrius says. Christ is everything. He is joy. He is life. He is light. He is the true light who makes man joyful, makes him soar with happiness, makes him see everything, everybody, makes him feel for everyone, to want everyone with him, everyone with Christ. Alright? Okay, so that's where I wanted to wrap up. And I'll give you an opportunity to ask any questions while I pull up the questions from the Slido. Any questions on your mind? The sickness, I, I made notes on them, and these are beautiful. I like to, to comment on them. Number six is the burial of will and resurrection of humility. Obedience, yes, from St. John Climacus. The last virtue would be humility kills pride. Yes. True quality of being like, oh, beyond. I look, I look at the Google on virtue, it says... <laughs> Is wisdom? <laughs> it doesn't count. <laughs> or philosophical. <laughs> so let me ask um, a question that was just submitted, and then uh, we'll uh, just talk about it together. Do the scriptures confirm that suffering produces sanctification? Of course. So Saint Paul says, 
If we suffer with him, we shall be glorified with him. Right? And and you know, I I don't know the scriptures, you know, entirely off the top of my head, but I'm sure if I dug into I'll find countless more that reflect that Saint Paul, like emphasize this over and over and over again. Why? Because he himself experienced that reality. For him, suffering, producing sanctification and glory wasn't theoretical. It wasn't philosophical. But it was a reality. It was experiential. To him, it was his life. Because he suffered and he realized the extent of this gift. Right? And and that's why... um, you know, we see in, in, in an epistle like Philippians, he's in prison, he's suffering, right? And the word joy, or some derivative of that word, reoccurs more than 16 times, more than any other epistle in the scriptures, right? He was joyful because he realized the suffering, participating in the suffering of Christ was a grace, a gift to him. Next question is, are priests, bishops, and deacons the only people that can manifest the presence of Christ? That's a very good question. So I would just clarify what manifest the presence of Christ means because if I just take that as face value, I would say certainly not anyone is called to be the salt of the earth and the the light of Christ unto the world. Okay, so we're all to manifest Christ to others to be all that God is. Remember that quote that I shared with you by C.S. Lewis that he said, if we saw man to the extent of the glory that, that God has given him, you know, we would be tempted to fall down and worship a man that truly reflected the, pen, but the potential that he was called to have. Right? So we're called to reflect the presence of Christ to one another. But in regards to administering the sacraments, that's reserved to the priesthood. Okay, next question is, why the cross? Why couldn't it have been any other method in which Christ saved us? Could he have saved Adam and Eve on the spot? Okay, that's a great question. In the cross, we, we see the revelation of God's love. <coughs> so what is revealed to us that, is that salvation could not have come in any way except through the cross. Could have God done it in any other way? Theoretically, yeah. I mean, that's what many of the fathers say. St. Isaac the Syrian says, theoretically, yeah. But what reveals and manifests his love more than that ultimate sacrifice, right? Where, other than the cross, would God have carried in himself the sufferings of the world, Right? Nothing was more like anxiety-provoking, more stressful, more physically painful, more mentally aching, um, more uh, like forsaken of a condition to 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 experience than the cross. Okay, that's why we, we know. He, he, could, he would have chosen nothing else. Like he chose the cross. Because the cross was the worst of the worst. St. Athanasius on, uh, on the Incarnation, he says it's like a wrestler walking into a room of wrestlers. If he's 
to really be the victorious one, the, 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 the best of the best, he's not to just fight someone that he picks out himself, but he's to say, who's the strongest here? You guys pick whatever opponent you want to give me. Give me your best. Give me your best shot, right? <laughs> and then he would prove his own credibility. But if he just walked in and he said, oh, I want to fight him. I, I'm, you would say like maybe he's afraid, he's afraid of those other guys. But Christ came to earth and said, death, give me your best shot. And it came in the form of the cross. And he overcame it. And he overcame it. So, last question. Did the Orthodox Church participate in the Crusades? In a no. sense, yes. Because you saw whenever um, the, the Crusaders passed through Constantinople and some of the Eastern Orthodox uh, churches, denominations, that there, there was um, more Crusaders involved there from that area. Okay? And, and remember, I emphasized the one that really put like a, a strict um, division between the two was whenever Constantinople was sacked, right? But the, the source of the crusaders being Sword. sent out came from Rome, came from the Catholic Church, not from the, the Eastern Oriental Orthodox churches. Okay? So... I hope that helps. It was a very fun journey. Um, I think we did a good job wrapping everything up, right? It couldn't have been any more thorough. <laughs> so, so thank you. Uh, 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 I want to thank you for that. Uh, it's my There's pleasure. Thank God. Each, each verse, each, each point is just uh, transforming. Thank God. Uh, and glory be to God forever. Amen. <laughs>